Father, as we engage with Abraham and uh, stories of uh, terrible family dysfunction, Father, please help us to understand uh, how good you are and why it is that we need to understand about Abraham and his family and his faith. Amen. Please be seated. I don't know if you enjoy watching sitcoms or uh, soap operas, uh, but over the last 40 years you'll know from watching them what dysfunctional families look like. Uh, Think of Dallas uh, and the Ewing family, or Married with Children with the Bundys, uh, or the Bluths on Arrested Development, or pretty much anyone on Ramsey Street or in Summer Bay. Um, Messed up, dysfunctional families have been the mainstay of TV for years and people find them mesmerising. They're utterly transfixed by these wretched characters doing terrible things to each other. I mean, uh, miserable family lives. We, we were at a uh, Christmas party last night or a birthday party last night and the granddad of the girl whose birthday it was was saying, the one thing I can't miss in the, during the week is home and away and I'll catch up with it on um, 7 Prime. And he, he was an old tattooed man, just transfixed by uh, home and away. Uh, and it's bizarre, right? Because if you had to live in a family like that, as I know some of you have experienced, it's horrifyingly awful and destructive and painful. But when it's on TV, we have this kind of morbid fascination with it. In fact, we don't even have to make up the characters anymore. We just film real-life families like the Kardashians uh, or the Desperate Housewives of New York or uh, Jersey Shore. I read during the week that the Desperate Housewives, uh, two of them are in jail at the moment. Uh, Something Anyway, awful people who you'd never want to be related to if you could help it. The story of Abraham's life almost feels like one of those series. It's not a sitcom, uh, it's not a soap opera, it's real life. But it's a real life family with utterly bizarre relationships, epic struggles, jealousy, bickering, sexual tension and dodgy deals. And so if it wasn't so seriously important to the history of the world or seriously important to the plans or purposes of God, in fact if it wasn't so important to knowing God, and becoming part of God's family, well, we could just sit back and laugh at it or cringe as we read it like we do the TV shows or maybe just turn it off because we don't want to watch that rubbish anymore. But but it is important because as it turns out in God's plans and purposes, this man Abraham and his family are the key to God's plans for the salvation of the world. And as we round out the story of Abraham today and finish up for the time being in the book of Genesis, we're going to see exactly why it is that we need to know about this family. Now, we've already seen a lot of it already, but uh, we're finishing up today. Uh, we, we've been going for a few weeks on Abraham from chapter 12 onwards as we work through Genesis. Uh, today, we're going to see a whole bunch of family interactions uh, with different people in chapters 20 to 25. We're not going to look at any of them in much detail. I'll whip through them, but I want to come back and spend a significant portion of our time looking at the implications of Abraham's life for us as we try and come to grips with what God was doing and what he is doing still because of this man and his family. The first interaction comes in chapter 20, which we just read, where Abraham, not for the first time, uh, passes off his wife Sarah as his sister. Uh, he says that by the end of the chapter that that's what they've been doing for years, talking about being brother and sister. But 
for the second time, she's married off to another man, even though she's a married woman. Uh, this time it's Abimelech, who's a Philistine king, uh, king of the tribe or the, the city-state of Gerar. Uh, you might remember back in chapter 12, right at the start of Abraham's story, he'd done exactly the same thing when Sarah was much younger and she'd ended up as part of Pharaoh's harem in Egypt. Now that was nearly 25 years ago, as the story goes, when Sarah was 65 years old and she was considered at that point one of the most beautiful women uh, around who would make a great catch as a trophy wife and Pharaoh went, I've got to have her. And so he took her into his harem and we saw all the bad things that resulted. But now she's 90 and it turns out she's still got it. Uh, (laughs) And you might wonder how on earth is that possible that, you know, Abimelech's gone, hey, look at that lady on the walker. Uh, (laughs) uh, Well, there's a couple of possibilities. Uh, One, there's more going on than just her. I mean, Abraham's become a famous Nomad, he's got, he's got an army himself and maybe some trade deal kind of stuff going on. But it's more than that because Abraham fears he's going to die in order to get to Sarah. So I think it's actually still something about her and her beauty. Uh, remember she dies at 127. Abraham's going to live to 175 as we'll see. So maybe, maybe she's aging at a different rate. Uh, and she's only just gone past middle aged. Uh, maybe that's it. Or maybe she's just like this lady here. Uh, Cicely Tyson. Those photos are taken of her. She's 90 years old. She's Miles Davis's ex-wife, the uh, the jazz player. There you go. Now, obviously, she's had some work done, but she's pretty well preserved. Not a bad looker. Anyway, it's still possible to be 90 and turn heads. There you go. However, Sarah's age and beauty are not the strangest part of the story. As it goes on, here's some even things that are, things that are strange, well, at least to me. One, it's strange that Abraham, the man who's the father of faith, who's so important and going to be so important in God's plans, is really just a rational pragmatist. It doesn't matter to him who what he's got to do or who he's got to hurt or what lies he's got to tell in order to get ahead. That's strange, isn't it? He's the father of faith. Two, it turns out Sarah really is Abraham's sister. <laughs> well, she's his half-sister because Abraham's dad, Terah, if you remember his name from back in chapter 11, apparently he had a second woman and they had this child, Sarah, and so she's his half-sister and so that's weird. Uh, verse 12 of that. Uh, stranger again are Abraham's lame excuses Oh, I was just so scared. That's why I did it. That's why I lied about my wife. Um, you know, she's so pretty. Oh, I thought you'd kill me for her. I'm like, really? Really? I mean, she's, you know, getting on. I mean, is were people really going to kill him for her? Uh, and what about his standing army with which he has routed four foreign armies already? If you go back to chapter 14. You, you don't think they can protect you, you know, for your wife's sake? Uh, his excuses are almost as lame as Adam's back in chapter 3, if you remember, about why he'd sinned as well. And so it turns out that this kind of behaviour just runs in Adam's family. More bizarre again is that with both Pharaoh back in chapter 12 and Abimelech now, the pagan kings come across as much more honourable than the man of God. 
Abimelech's shocked to hear from God that he has another man's wife in his harem. He's very concerned to prove his innocence before God and before Abraham. I got lied to. I didn't know. I haven't even touched her. You know, we haven't consummated it yet. Um, fifth, it's strange that the whole harem suffers as a result. It's not just Abimelech, and it's not even Abraham, but all of Abimelech's wives and concubines are cursed. They become sick, and they all become barren. I take it that that means Sarah has been there for more than just a couple of days. If they've figured out no one can get pregnant anymore. It's more than just a few weeks, right? Even if Abimelech is very virile, it's going to take him some time to work out if, you know, they've got pregnant from, and and it's the whole harem. No one can get pregnant. But it's everyone. Strangest of all, though, I think, is the way of salvation for Abimelech and his harem. It's an absolute corker. Uh, Their salvation has to come through Abraham. That's weird, isn't it? He's the one that got them into trouble in the first place. God comes to Abimelech in a dream and says in verse 3, You're as good as dead because of the woman you've taken because she's married. Abimelech protests his innocence to God. He says, it's not my fault. Abraham lied about her and I haven't even slept with her yet. To which God replies in verse 16, that God said to him in a dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience and so I've kept you from sinning against me. That's why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you... And all who belong to you will die. How's that for a salvation plan? All right? God's got to rescue the innocent man by the prayers of the man who caused the problem in the first place by his lies. And if he doesn't take it back to Abraham and get Abraham to pray for him, everyone is going to die. Because Abraham is a prophet. He is God's man with God's word. And so Abimelech does return Sarah. He compensates Abraham and Sarah separately uh, with both giving him absolute fortunes, even though he was the one wronged. And Abraham does pray. And the result is that Abimelech's whole family and harem recover. But it's not just their womb, their wombs that are opened. Sarah's womb is open too. Because you remember, the whole problem all along has been Abraham, who's going to be the father of many nations, can't have a baby by his wife because she's barren as well. But she comes out of this harem situation back to Abraham and her womb is opened and she has the baby which has been for so long promised by God of which Abraham had believed God that it would happen against all normal natural expectations. And so Isaac is finally born at the start of chapter 21. So that's the first, that's appropriate isn't it? Celebrating babies together. (laughs) That's the first interaction. But it only gets more dysfunctional from there. I mean, that's bad enough. But remember, Sarah doubted she was ever going to conceive. And so what she'd done to kind of make sure there was an heir to have the promise was she said, hubby, brother, um, weird relationship, uh, um, I've got this Egyptian slave girl uh, who's kind of my maid. Why don't you sleep with her and have a kid and that'll be ours. (laughs) Uh, And so he had, uh, Hagar was her name and they'd had the son together, Ishmael. Never going to be any problems when that happens right in your family. Uh, 
And <laughs> you're thinking about it. You just don't, don't, don't. Okay, all right. <laughs> and that leads to the second interruption of Abraham's latter life. Pick it up in verse 8 of chapter 21. The child Isaac grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham had a great feast. So Isaac's only, what, a year and a half, something like that. There's a big party. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was Mokan, older brother, well, older half-brother. He's getting stuck into his his younger half-brother. And so she said to Abraham, get rid of the slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. I mean, now, she, now she's had a baby herself. She's few, filled with jealousy. She's insane, even though, of course, it was all her suggestion in the first place that he had this baby. The matter distressed Abraham so greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, don't be so distressed about the boy or your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also because he also is your offspring. And so God's going to look after this this other child and and his mum. And so what does Abraham do? Does he set them up in a villa down the road? You know, maybe talk to King Abimelech about maybe, you know, there's a nice place that she could live. Does he create a nice little nest egg for Ishmael's education? Uh, No. He sends them both out into the desert with a small bag of food and one skin of water between them. And it's absolutely horrifying because Hagar knows that it's a death sentence, that they're going to die there. Get rid of the woman, okay, go into the desert and die. Um, she's, she's so distressed after the water runs out from the, the one skin that she's got that she says to Ishmael in the second half of 21, that, uh, why don't you sit here under this bush while I, I go for a bit of a walk? And it says that she wanders off a couple of hundred metres because she doesn't want to be seen crying when he dies. But then a second bizarre rescue happens. God hears her crying and makes an amazing promise to her about the boy's future and she kind of looks around and notices that right behind her is a well which she hadn't seen before and they're both saved and they're able to make it to Egypt and start again. Abraham, meanwhile, is making further trade deals with Abimelech and setting up monuments to the Lord, the eternal God, back up, back down in the Philistine territory. The third bizarre family interaction is in chapter 22 with the new son Isaac, the child of the promise, the one who's finally arrived. We're not told how old he is at this point, if he's still a toddler or if he's five or if he's ten or maybe he's a teenager, we don't know. But God decides he's going to test Abraham. And so he says, Abraham, what do you want to do is take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. You think, hang on, how can that be? After all these years, after all the waiting, after all the promises, after all the family trouble with Hagar and Ishmael and banishing why Why would God ask Abraham to do this? Would you do it? God says, kill your child. Are you going to do it? And we're told it's a test. Will Abraham trust God even with this? And he does. He sets out with the boy. He says, hey lad, carry this wood. Abraham's slipped a knife in his belt. 
and they set off up a mountain. There's two servants, they leave them halfway down the hill. Isaac's starting to feel a little bit anxious as they get to the top because he knows they're going to make a sacrifice. And he says, uh, Dad, Dad, um, where's, the, where's the lamb that we're supposed to sacrifice up here? And at, uh, to which Abraham replies, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. At which point he builds the altar, he lays out the wood that his son's been carrying, and then he ties up his son and ties him to the top of the pile of wood. He pulls out his knife and he's about to slit his throat. And for the third time in three chapters, another miraculous salvation occurs. Just as Abraham raises the knife, an angel calls out, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. And he turns around and there's a ram in the bushes. He says, let's kill that instead. Fourth interaction occurs in chapter 23 when Sarah dies and he has to work out where he's going to bury his wife. He's a nomad. They really don't have anywhere to go. But at this stage, he's moved from the Philistine territory on the coast up further north into Hittite territory. And he's become really well liked by all the locals. In fact, he's so well liked that they treat him generously, too generously, as it turns out. And he refuses to accept their generosity. Uh, they want to give him a field with a cave at the end of it that he kind of likes for the graveyard. And they say, we'll just give it to you. And he's like, no, I want to pay for it. And they're like, no, no, we like you. We're going to give it to you for your wife's body. Says, it's okay. And he says, I insist I am going to pay for this field. And he does. And it's interesting because of all the land that God had promised to give Abraham and his family when he first stood on top of that hill back in chapter 12 and was told to look around and see everything, uh, and it would all be his, right? From the, the coast right over to the sort of Tigris-Euphrates River. You know, the whole Middle East was going to be Abraham's by the promise of God. At the end of his life, indeed for the next 500 years on, this one little field with the cave at the end is the only bit he ever owned, and that's where he buried his wife. A bit he bought with his own money and that he uses as a private ceremony, a cemetery. But then finally, just to round out the uh, dysfunctional family story, chapter 25, we'll skip over 24. Uh, if we come back to Genesis at some point, we'll pick it up from there. But chapter 25, there's one more interaction which rounds out Abraham's story. He's now older than 137 years old. He's an old dude. He's buried Sarah, his wife. Now he's banished his other girlfriend, concubine wife, uh, Hagar. And he thinks, you know what? Time to marry again. And so he finds a young woman, her name is Keturah, and he marries her and she bears him many children. You know, she doesn't have fertility problems and, and so uh, a whole bunch of other kids, all of whom he sends off so that Isaac can inherit everything. Why are you having kids with this woman? Um, and then you get to verse 7 of chapter 25. Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him together in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite, the field that Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death... God blessed his son Isaac and it becomes 
Isaac's story from here on. So that's Abraham's latter years. Wow. Uh, who wants to be part of that family? <laughs> uh, hey, Dad. Yeah, good on you. What, what is it that God wants us to see? Because actually being part of Abraham's family turns out to be critically important, as we'll see. What, why does he give us this bizarre story of a messed up family from nearly 4,000 years ago? Why can't we just go and watch Home and Away or the Kardashians instead and get the same kind of you know, morbid fascination? Well, there's many things, but I, but I want to draw out five. Five. That's kind of, why does God set it up this way? Well, the first thing is that we need to get the basis of being a man or a woman of God. The basis of being a man of God or a woman of God is never that you are perfect. That's not the way God's ever worked in the Old Testament or the New Testament. The basis of being one of God's people is by his mercy, his mercy alone, which is offered to sinful people who do not deserve it. Abraham is a mongrel. He's a liar, he's a pragmatist, he's a coward, he causes terrible bitterness and division in his own family. He basically prostitutes his wife, who also happens to be his half-sister, right? But God had mercy on him. And isn't that what God is in the business of doing? Of having mercy on sinners, saving sinners by his mercy. That is, the Bible would actually deny its very message of hope if it presented us with people who are only ever constantly and consistently good all the time. Because the Bible is about the salvation of sinful people. Now we should know that and have known that right from chapter 3, right? Because of the fall. That that's what this whole book is about. How God's going to rescue humanity who spit in his face and walk away from him and do terrible things to each other. That's what this book is about. And so it helps to see God mercifully deal with someone like Abraham because, quite frankly, we're just like him. Oh, I, don't, I might never have done some of the things he did. I mean, time will tell. Uh, <laughs> but... But it's only different circumstances. I mean, I'm not a Middle Eastern herdsman 4,000 years ago, so I don't know what the pressure of that's like. And, and I think it's lack of opportunity, really. See, what is it that's driving Abraham all along? It's, it's self-preservation, isn't it? The thing that drives us. He, he lies to protect himself because he's afraid he's going to be killed. Right? He's, he's selling off his wife to get ahead. Um, he's... Abraham is not so foreign for me that I can't identify with him. I can identify with him all too well. So it's just as well that God's in the business of saving people like that. Because that means he's in the business of saving people like me. Second implication. It really should boost our confidence in the scriptures as reliable history. Because it's not setting out to sanitise the characters or to make them more godly or more holy than they actually were. They're continually recorded like this, much to the embarrassment of the nation of Israel. I mean, who's your father? Uh, 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 the, 
yeah, and we don't want to talk about him too much, but you know, it's kind of like being Anglican, isn't it? You know, the constant complaint about Anglicans is, well, the reason there's Anglican church at all is because a dirty king wanted to get divorced and have another, you know, have it off with some other woman, right? I mean, that's why we exist. Uh, same with the apostles. They're recorded in the gospel as being as thick as two planks. Um, they're cowards and they've got a serious case of foot and mouth disease. Every time they open their mouths to speak in the Gospels, it's only to change feet. And they're the great founders of the church. You look at every other religion and what they do with their founders' stories. Take the Mormons. You read the Mormon accounts of Joseph Smith and the Twelve Witnesses. They were so godly and pure in everything. They were the, the greatest men who ever walked on the face of the earth. In fact, in the Mormon histories, that if you were to go up to the local uh, Mormon congregation and in there they mandated to, uh, they have to carry the seven volume history of Mormonism, uh, you can read that Joseph Smith in their own histories boasts that he is the greatest man to ever walk the earth. Greater, he did greater things even than Jesus Christ who he says that he was serving. All their real problems of psychiatric illness and the jail time they did for evil deeds, which are now well known to history, the lies that Joseph Smith told, he said, I'm not married to 33 women. He was married to seven at the time. Uh, And he couldn't have been married to the 33 legally because seven of them were married to other men at the time. Like, just abominable. But they're conveniently left out of the Mormon histories. Or Islam, Muhammad, he was a sage and a poet, you know, who was always noble, wasn't he, in his dealing with everyone. Yeah, right. Or Buddha, the prince who despaired over the the suffering of the people when he finally broke out of the palace because his dad had kept him there. And so he went out and he saw what was going on in the streets and he came up with a new religion because he was so noble. The Bible's not like that. The heroes were people who were just like you and me. They were sinners because that's who God is dealing with. Real people, not make-believe people. This is real history. Uh, Gavin and Dave were talking the other night about um, domestic violence and how does the police know when he said, she said, um, who's telling the truth. It's it's easy. The the, The person who's telling the truth is the one who doesn't paint themselves to be completely innocent. The one who says they contributed. Right? Because that's reality. Third implication. Over and over again we're shown that that in saving sinners it has to be God's way, not our way. If it were up to Abraham, he'd never have had Isaac. In fact, he wouldn't have even had Ishmael. He'd have stopped with his plan to adopt Eliezer of Damascus back in chapter 15. And when he did have the son that God promised, the boy Isaac, if Abraham were making the plans, there's no way to go, well, you know what, let's take him up on the mountain and kill him. That'd be a good idea, wouldn't it? (laughs) Or, you know, the way Abimelech saved or the way that Hagar and Ishmael are saved. I mean, they're they're all God's way. They're not what we would have thought of. God's always going to do things his way, not our way. And so what we need to do is to listen to God and to trust him because God actually knows what he's talking about and he knows what he's doing. And so when he says this is how it is, we just got to trust him. That's, I mean, in the end, that's how Abraham is right with God, isn't it? He trusts God. 
A fourth implication, I think this one is kind of more key to the section we've been looking at, is the idea of blessing and cursing. Those who are blessed by Abraham are blessed by God. Those who are cursed by Abraham are cursed by God. God is the God of Abraham for the sake of the whole world. For this man is God's special servant for God's purposes, even though in terms of moral integrity, he's got nothing more going for him than any of his contemporaries. In fact, Sarah and Abimelech and the Hittites, everyone else comes across as much better people, don't they? But remember back to Genesis chapter 12 where it all began. When God called Abraham, what did he say? Got it on the screen, you can flip back there if you like. There's been no information about Abraham up until this point other than his dad is terror. And God says to him, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And what we should have been looking for and right through the Bible is we're looking for the fulfilment of those promises. And lo and behold, you see it working out even in Abraham's lifetime in all of his dealings with people as weird and corrupt and dysfunctional as they all are. Those who connect with Abraham always end up the better for it. Abraham prays for God's mercy on Sodom and God gives them the chance he wasn't going to give them. In fact, Lot is only saved because Abraham prayed. Uh, Abimelech, you know, he's, he comes to Abraham, makes amends, asks him to pray for him, and his whole family are blessed as they escape God's judgment on them. They won't die. And as Abraham makes amazing trade deals for them that they prosper from. Abraham is the touchstone of blessing. But it wasn't just for his lifetime. If, it was all, if that's all God was talking about, you know, the 175 years of Abraham's life, it's a bit of a waste of time. So what if God blessed some people years ago because they met Abraham? People like Abimelech. I mean, has anyone ever met a Philistine? I mean, a real one, not, a, you know, not just a bogan. Uh, um, if that's all God was doing, it really doesn't make much difference, doesn't it? Especially for us now, thousands of years later, the other side of the world, no connection at all. But it didn't stop there. It happened for a while in Israel's history. In David and Solomon's time, the, the, the whole Middle East was uh, owned by Israel and, uh, and they were blessed as these wise kings ruled it all. Even countries and people from as far away, like as the Queen of Sheba, were incredibly blessed during that time through Abraham's descendants. But that can't be the fulfilment either because that only lasts through the reign of two magnificent kings and and it never comes back to those glory days. Straight after Solomon, the kingdom's divided in half. Within 200 years, the northern kingdom are completely destroyed, never to be heard from again. Within another 120 years, the two southern tribes are decimated. They're taken off to captivity in Babylon, and they'll return some 70 years people later, a broken and small people who live successively under the occupation of the Persians, the Greeks, the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, the Ptolemies again, the Seleucids again, and finally the Romans who eventually destroy them. And they don't occupy the land again until 1948. 
and they're still hardly a great nation. And they don't occupy all the land that was promised to Abraham. And they're really run by a foreign power still, aren't they? America. And they're not seeking to be a blessing to the world and to bring these fulfilment of the promises to Abraham. So it's never actually been national Israel. How is it then that the nations are going to be blessed by Abraham? That's the question you should be asking. How could the nations be blessed by Abraham? And the key, and that's the fifth thing, the key is in the phrase the Bible uses, right with God. That is how the nations are blessed. So how can the nations be right with God? And that ultimately is what it means to have the blessings of God, being right with him as Abraham was right with God. But how can that happen? How can that blessing come to the nations? How can God's blessing come to a world full of people who don't live for God, who have no fear of God, as Abimelech's people are described, who substitute the truth of God for lies and and make up other religions with their superficial, um, holier-than-thou pretend leaders, uh, or who won't believe that God exists at all, or who lie and cheat and steal and just live for self. How can any of the blessings come to us and to the nations? Well, there are two answers. And they're both spelled out for us in Galatians chapter 3, which takes up Abraham's story. The first answer is those blessings come by faith. The nations, or the New Testament word for the nations, is Gentiles. Gentiles just means non Jewish, the nations, okay? Anyone who's not a Jew. Basically, it means pagans. The nations, the Gentiles, the pagans are justified, they are right with God by faith. The same faith that Abraham had. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6. So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's a quote from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, which is one of the most quoted things in the New Testament. Okay, it's, it's... Underline that. If you're going to have a memory verse, don't memorize things like I memorized as a youth, like uh, Amos 4:4, which is uh, go to Bethel and sin, go to Gilgal and sin yet more, or uh, Amos 6:9. If ten men are left in the house, they too will die. Uh, I thought you know very dangerous if you have a party of ten. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> memorize that. Uh, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, because that's how you're right with God. Anyway, that's the quote. Understand then, verse 7, that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Get that? You have faith like he did, you become his child. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, the nations, by faith, and he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. This is the gospel, that all nations will be blessed through you, Abraham. Genesis twelve three is the gospel in advance. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. That is Abraham's chief blessing, that the nations can be right with God through faith, just like he was. Not any faith, not faith in whatever you like, faith which is defined as taking the promises of Abraham's God at his word. That's how you receive the blessings of Abraham, that you take Abraham's God at his word. But there's a second part to the same answer. 
The blessing of Abraham comes by being connected by faith to Abraham's greatest descendant. Because the real promise, as we saw two weeks ago, was not made to Abraham, but to his seed or his son. Not sons, not descendants, to a son, a seed. And Abraham goes to great lengths to work out which son it is. It's not Eliezer of Damascus. It's not Ishmael. It's not the many sons of Keturah. It's not even Isaac in the end. It's in fact someone generations later. It's Jesus. He's the one the nations will be blessed through. Abraham's great, 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 whatever grandson. 2,000 years later. How does Jesus bring the blessing to the nations? Well, it doesn't come to those who think they can earn it, to those who think, well, you know what? I'm better than Abraham. I never sold my wife to anyone. (laughs) Um, Verse 10 of chapter 3 of Galatians. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. If you think you're good enough for God that you can earn his favour and think, you know what? I'm better than everyone else. God will have me. You are under a curse. Under God's curse, in fact. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. You want to be right by being morally better, you've got to be perfect and have been that right from your infancy. You can never have set a foot wrong at all. If you want to be right with God that way, you would have to do that. But it's not the case and because it's not the case, we're all toast. Because we can't be perfect. We don't even live up to our own expectations, right? Let alone God's. So how does it come? Well, it comes, in fact, by a sacrifice. The sacrifice of a one and only son. A beloved son of a father. A son who carried his own wood that was going to kill him up a mountain where he would be put to death. Not Isaac, but the greater son, the distant descendant, Jesus. And so Galatians 3 goes on. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. He died there and he was cursed. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, might come finally to the nations through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. That is the real miraculous salvation that God brings, one we could never have hoped for, one we could never have planned on. You know, just like Abimelech would never have thought that his salvation would come by the dirty rod of Abraham who he had to go and ask to pray for him uh, or by turning around and there's a well or turning around and there's a lamb. <laughs> this, is, this is something not thought of, never planned for. This is the way God is bringing his blessings to the nations as the gospel announced 4,000 years ago to Abraham in advance goes out. The gospel of God's mercy in his son's sacrifice for us to take the curse that we might receive God's blessing, the blessing of being right with God through faith. That is the blessing of Abraham. That is the blessing we can receive. You've, uh, hopefully you've received it already. You've trusted Abraham's God like he did, trusted the son, Jesus Christ, who died for you. That's the gospel message that we're proclaiming tonight at the carols. 
That's what we're proclaiming over Christmas. That's what we want everyone in the region to know and to believe and to trust him because that is the way of life. It is being That is the true blessing and you'll only be cursed otherwise. That is what we're praying for our missionaries as they share it with the nations as they go out in South America and Campbelltown. That's another country, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> and around Australia. Uh, that, that is the way God is blessing the nations through his son, Jesus Christ, and that message going out. If you want to be part of being God's blessing to other people, you've got to be part of taking that message because that is the way God blesses the nations. Father, we thank you that we have this uh, horrible story of a rotten man and his awful family dealings so that we might have hope because you made the promise to him and he trusted you. Uh, Father, we thank you. You have mercy on sinners like us and like Abraham. Please continue to have mercy on us. Please forgive us for our failings. Help us to trust you in everything. Help us never to say that we're innocent and pure because we know we're not. We pray that we wouldn't be those who rely on being morally good to save ourselves because it's never going to happen. But thank you that Christ has come in your mercy, your way, You have sent him to die for us, to take the curse on our behalf, that we might have a life and might have your blessing, and that you've called us to trust you and by that trust be right with you. Please help us to be passionate about making disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ because it is the only way that people can be saved and have your blessing. We pray for our missionaries that you would sustain them in their work, help them to stay faithful to Jesus Help them to have the courage to speak when it's difficult. And we pray that you will give us that same sense of urgency and courage that we might proclaim that nation tonight and next week at Christmas and every day and every week and every year from here on. Help us to be part of your plan of the salvation of humanity. Amen. Let's sing.